Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Psalms. 117, we'll start at uh, verse number 1, and then we'll finish in 118, line number 9. For those of you who want to follow these verses uh, in a non-electronic way, you may do so in the uh, blue pew Bible that sits in front of you. There you can find the lines on page 511. The word of our Lord. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Today we continue our study on being the body of Christ, and this is our last of that series on reaching up, which is about worship. Next week we begin reaching in, about fellowship, and some weeks later we'll begin reaching out, that is mission, outreach. And these are dangerous sermons in one sense because they're topical sermons, and you learn it, I understand at Covenant Seminary, never preach a topical sermon. So never try this at home, boys and girls. Uh, only for 60-year-old men who have uh, been around. No. Um, so I won't be doing an, an exposition of Psalm 117 and 118, but I will refer to different ideas. And it certainly captures beautifully the whole centerpiece of worship that we're calling on the nations to worship this God who is great in his steadfast love and faithfulness, who rescues us in salvation and delivers us, in whom we take great refuge. It really sounds all the wonderful notes of our, our worship. Now, kids, suppose there's a huge worldwide drawing contest for girls to participate in. Sorry, guys, this one's for girls. And suppose they announce the prize with a lot of fanfare. You get one broken egg shell. Now, you would be like, that's no prize at all. You can get a broken egg shell in five seconds in your own refrigerator. Prize is something you can really prize, you treasure, right? Something so wonderful you're amazed at it. What if the prize was a $5,000 doll, right? handcrafted and 
with such a beautiful face and stunning detail, clothes and hat and shoes and purse, when you win it and see it, you just put your hand over your mouth. You've never seen anything so beautiful. And you just reach out trembling hands and hold it to yourself. You can't believe you have this doll. Now that's a prize, right? And you know what it is to prize something like that, to value it, to put it in a special place and you wake up in the morning and look at it and you go to bed at night and look at it and you get it out carefully and play with it. That's what it means to prize something or treasure something, right? You admire it, you stare at it, you touch it, you examine all the parts of its beauty. You keep putting your hand to your mouth and shaking your head. How wonderful is this? Our calling in life Our vocation, you might say, is simple, yet it's difficult, it's glorious, and it is this, to prize God in all of life, and especially to prize God together as his people in worship. And so I want to work through some of the parts of worship and think about how we prize God in every part of worship. We won't be able to touch on everything in worship, but several things at least. First, the call to worship, all right? The call to worship. Mike Horton says, whenever we gather for worship, we have been summoned. Now, in the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, anybody seen that one, right? Yeah. People from all over America were given this vision of a mountain in Wyoming called Devil's Tower because aliens were going to land on the huge flat uh, space on the top of that mountain. And so many of these people drew pictures of Devil's Tower over and over again. They were just completely taken up with it. They couldn't stop it. And Roy Neary, played by Richard Dreyfus, built a huge model of of it out of dirt that took over his whole living room. Devil's Tower right in his living room. But a handful of these people break through the blockade the government had set up around Devil's Tower. They're captured. They're on this truck ready to be sent out. And the French scientist, Claude Lacombe, is arguing with the army commander. And he says, we did not choose this time. We do not choose this place. We do not choose this people. To stop them is not for us to choose. They belong here more than we do. And he shows him the sketches and compares them to Devil's Tower, which is right behind them. And he says, this is a small group of people who who have shared a vision in common. Interesting little note there in that movie. You see, we have been summoned. We are the ones who've been summoned into the presence of God. As Mike Horton says, we've been summoned to come to him, summoned to know him and delight in him, to see in terms of our passage afresh that his steadfast love and his faithfulness endure forever. Through the gospel, you've been given a common vision of His glory, the goodness of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And our good friend Kevin Twitt says that the work of preaching and worship is to present Jesus as more beautiful and more believable to us than He ever was before. That's our task, to come together 
the call together. Let's feast upon Jesus. Let's see that He's more beautiful and more believable than we thought He was. And we can prize God's call to worship Him. Value being with God's people in worship. And I want to suggest to you that prizing God begins with anticipation And this may pinch a little, but it continues with timeliness, okay? Uh, I was able just to watch this morning because I didn't, wasn't doing what Brian was doing. And, but this is our kind of regular habit that apparently everybody thinks the call to worship is, should be listed as the coming in time. (laughs) You know, oh, this is the time where Brian gets up and we all move in while he's calling us to worship, you know. I want to suggest to you a new pattern for us, okay? And now, realize that stuff happens, and that a lot of it happens on Sunday morning. And if you've got one to five or some more children, a lot of stuff happens. <laughs> we get that. And nobody's going to be judging you and, you know, none of that, okay? But I'm just trying to, let's lockstep together. Let's try to be in here at two or three minutes, seated and in our right minds, when he stands up. Perhaps it would be great for Brian not to even have to say to most of the people who are not even in here at 10, now let's come in and sit down and gather. Wouldn't it be great if he stood up at 10 o'clock? Everybody was here, anticipating, ready, eager to worship God, eager immediately to enter into the call to worship. It'd be a whole different feel at the beginning of worship. A whole different attitude. I love that we love each other. I love that we love to talk to each other. That's fine. We've got all afternoon to do that if you want to. But let's begin uh, together, settled and eager, anticipating at straight up 10 o'clock so that he doesn't have to tell anyone... (laughs) to come inside and take their seats. So, uh, the call itself is such an important time because just as he beautifully did this morning, Brian opens up some wonderful feature of worship, some critical aspect of our humanity as it relates to worship. I'm telling you, don't miss it. Don't miss it. We're paying him good money to be up here. <laughs> No, I'm just telling you, just to think of 50 times in a year where you would get to hear a Brian Davis encourage you and instruct you and train you in worship, or you don't because you're not here. It's so important, so wonderful for us to engage in this. And then we enter into worship by reading God's call, His wonderful summons to feast on His goodness. And then we launch into praise. His first command to us is to praise Him as we come in. Psalm 100 says, come into His presence with singing. The command we read in Psalm 117 and 118, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 22 says, He's enthroned on the praises of Israel. Isn't it wonderful to think that as we hear Him call us into worship and we respond and stand to praise Him, we are enthroning Him in our praises. In poetry and voice 
and music. We are crying out to Him how great He is. We're pouring out our adoration for all He has done for us, all He is doing for us, all He promises to do for us. We celebrate Him and enthrone Him. And this is a countercultural action because in doing so, we're dethroning all idols, all false gods in our adoration. We renew our conviction of His worth and His supremacy. And I say, don't miss it. Don't, don't miss it. Be a part of it. And then there's the invocation as we had today. Our beginning prayer, we call the invocation because this means an appeal for help. Immediately as we come in praising him, we recognize we are in over our heads. This is something we can't do on our own. We can't praise you on our own. We, we can't stir our hearts on our own. We can't make our affections well up to you on our own. We can't do it. And so we cry out to him for help. We can't possibly obey his call to worship on our own. Lord, you must draw us out. You must give us new desires. You must claim our hearts and renew our hearts. It is a recognition and invocation that... There's no possibility of human flourishing in our lives except God do it. So we come to feast on him and we pray that we really will feast. But we're assured this is a confident prayer because he says, as we read, uh, the Lord is on my side. He, I called on the Lord. He answered me and set me free. And so, as we call upon Him, He will set us free to worship. He will visit us and draw us after Himself. We then enter into the doxology, praising the one true God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We expressly acknowledge Him as the true God who is an eternal fellowship uh, of joyful love. Mike Cosper says, So before the world began, there was love. It flowed, perfect, complete, constant between the three persons of the Trinity. This love was an unending appreciation, a perpetual beholding and rejoicing in the goodness and perfection of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The scene was what theologian Fred Sanders calls the happy land of the Trinity. <laughs> it was and is a totally self-sufficient community of love and glory. And as Jonathan Edwards says, the happiness of the deity... As in all happiness, consists of love and society. Isn't that marvelous? Brothers and sisters, that's the God that we worship. Because He's the only God. He's the true God who exists in fellowship, who exists in love. He's a God you can approach. He's a God you can know because He's known and knowing from all eternity. He is into relationship. He is relationship. And so we celebrate this relational, outgoing, life-giving God who rains blessings upon His people. And we say no to the false gods, the non-relational tyrants and forces who are not 
the kind Father at their root who are not love. We praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What a privilege to do that with you, brothers and sisters. What a privilege to join in your, with your voices and this wonderful music we have and to sing and praise the true God who dwells in everlasting love. We confess our sins. In confession, we acknowledge that the world's not the way it was meant to be. The church is not the way it's meant to be. And I'm not the way I'm meant meant to be. Our confession announces to the world that no one comes to God based on their own performance. Our confession says that, declares it. We are here only because of mercy. Our confession and our lament echoes the groaning of creation itself. We give voice to the groaning of creation as we cry out, Oh God, how long? When will you come and renew all things? It tells the unbeliever as we talk about our own pain and suffering that we are real that we can talk about our suffering, that we are concerned about the pain of the earth. We give voice to all the suffering of creation, asking how long. And though our confession is uncomfortable because it reminds us of our sin, it's also liberating because we face our sin together. We are honest about our sin. We uncover it before God. And so our confession is this bold recognition of the reality of sin's corruption in all of life. It's, it's a bold recognition of the terrible consequences of sin. Confession is honest and it's wholesome. So we confess. And then we have this hymn of trust and assurance of forgiveness We give an opportunity immediately for you to taste God's grace in song. In song, crying out for mercy. Or we rehearse Christ's work for us. We rehearse God's love for us. We rehearse His promises to us. We rehearse His care for us and His future for us. And we do it in song so we are enriched and we're changed. (laughs) And we experience the gospel afresh, you see. Constantly living out and experiencing this wonderful gospel, this good news. And the assurance of forgiveness or pardon that comes right after it. As Cosper and Smith say, we live in a culture that constantly offers empty assurance. You know, believe in yourself, you're okay. That refuse to recognize the failure and guilt and transgressions that we have. It's an assurance without confession, without facing reality. But God's assurance is built upon God's very act in Christ in which He bore terrible violence for our sake to deliver us and all creation from sin and brokenness. That's reality. That's a true assurance. Built upon the mighty act of God Himself. Not covering over, not running from things, not drowning ourselves in entertainment or what, or pleasure or whatever, or work or, or whatever to escape the guilt. So we don't believe in ourselves. We believe in this gracious, good, and strong Father who sacrificed His Son for us. 
And we read in Psalm 118, The Lord is on my side, is my helper. What can man do to me? What can anything do to me if God is for me? And what's so great about confession is we begin with our sin and honesty over it, and we end with the complete a, a, a sense of the complete commitment of God for our good. That's sweet. As you're honest about who you are. And you end up with a sense of God's commitment to your good without hiding anything about yourself. That's what we're about in worship. Together as God's people. And sometimes we will have a confession of faith. And in many respects, our songs have embedded in them confessions of faith. And many times our assurances and uh, our yeah, are, are also full of confessions of faith. And when we confess our faith in this way, we're saying fundamentally Jesus is Lord, God is Lord, not any emperor, not any monarch, not any king or queen or president or prime minister or dictator or chairman or CEO. We are citizens of a kingdom, an earthly kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of God. And in our confession, we declare the foundations of that kingdom. We declare who we are, what we love, who we think is supreme, what is at stake for us as the people of God in this new city of which we are a part. How glorious to confess his faith with his people as the new city, the new people of God. And in so doing, our confessions are Trinitarian always. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so again, we reject all other gods. We confess the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He alone is creator. He alone is redeemer. He alone is the director of history to its final end, which he will bring to a conclusion in his time through his Son who will judge the world and renew the whole earth. We confess that. We enter into prayer together. And when we pray, we show, as Cosper and, and Smith talk about this, I'm quoting from Mike Cosper's book, Rhythms of Grace, and James Smith, De- Desiring the Kingdom. But when we pray, we show that there's more to this world than meets the eye. And I love this. For those of us who pray, the world must be characterized by a kind of enchantment. I love that. Because there's more... That's going on that meets the eye. You know, I love that. We, we had a gnome book when we were ki- uh, when our kids were small. And uh, they liked it okay. I loved it. Okay? It's a whole book of gnomes and a whole book about how they cook and how they live and what their families are like. And I mean, it's a thick, rich book. You, everything you've always wanted to know about gnomes is in this book. And it's illustrated for those of us who need uh, pictures. Um, but it's, it's so amazing, isn't it, to think of that. What if there were little gnomes out there, you know? What if, what if under all those little bushes out there, there were little people running around, you know? And they had their whole world. We, we have, how many movies are made of, of little people, you see, that live in the house or the ants or the, and imagining them, personifying them. Well, in a far deeper, more glorious way, in a, re- in a way that's in keeping with reality, Darwin. Uh, 
as much as I might want there to be knowns. <laughs> there is a God, and He is at work in every single aspect of our worship, and He's at work in every single aspect of your life. This world is enchanted in the best way. It's not just what you see. It's what God is doing, what God is enacting. And when we pray, we declare this. We declare it to the whole world. As the elders lead us in prayer, we are saying to the whole world, this world is controlled by God. He is among us. He goes with us in every circumstance. He's active. He's involved. He never turns away from any one of us. Prayer declares the world to be a certain way. It declares our whole view of God's relationship to the world and what He is able to do and His fatherly care. This is why the teaching of Arius was so damaging because Arius said that God was for a long time this Godness thing and then at a certain point He made His Son. And the theologians were so wonderful to say, no, He was Father in His essence. It's not just some tack-on thing that He was Father. He's always been Father. He's always been relational. He's always been the kindly Father. He rules as a Father. He does everything as a Father. Prayer tells the world there is a Father that rules this world. And as we intercede for one another and for the world, we realize that we've been called Chosen as a people, not for our own sake, but for the sake of the world. We're God's ambassadors and image bearers charged with caring for creation. And so we bring Him the concerns of creation for each other, for the church worldwide, for the world itself. We pray for the poor, for the persecuted and afflicted, for governments, for those caught in natural disasters, for those overcome by disease. We even pray for our enemies. We pray in lament. We have this vision for shalom that we bring before God, that He's given us a final peace that Christ will bring. So we intercede. Come and join with us and intercede for the world, you ambassadors, you image bearers that God is called together, has summoned. And in each of these things, you see, we prize Him. We prize Him in prayer. We prize Him in adoration. We prize Him in confession and assurance. We prize Him. And in giving, we prize Him. This is a response to the gospel with transformed hearts. As Cosper says, we're released from the idolatry of money and we're empowered to give it away. It's a whole new reverse, a whole new socioeconomic that breaks in upon God's people. It moves us away from our money idols toward generosity, eager to support the mission of God, the pastors and shepherds of the church, and brothers and sisters in need. I love his statement, the offering during our weekly service is an opportunity to deconstruct one of the human heart's greatest idols. Come 
and deconstruct your idol by giving. Deconstruct the idol, the strongest one in your heart, by pouring yourself out gladly and giving away. The gospel tells us that this is something we're free to do, we're invited to do, because we're no longer slaves of money. How glorious to engage with this, with his people. And I close with just a few words about singing, though we've talked a good bit about singing. Singing and psalms and hymns are kind of like a language training manual, as all of worship really is. It's like training you in the language of the kingdom, training you like you would a child on how to speak to God. And and your speech really is who you are, and, and for it to be wedded then to song even, uh, even more strongly draws you into a new way to think about God and a new way to feel about God. Thomas Long calls it God's language school, which challenges us to practice forms of faithful speech to God that we're not likely to try on our own, and that's true. We come together and speak new words to God and new poetry to God New words of confession, new words of assurance are are told us how glorious that we participate in this training ground for thinking and speaking about God and speaking to God. And hymns are, are like, as Harold Best says, compacted theology. And the way we sing them, it knits a new vision of God to our hearts. How glorious. Come and knit a new vision of God. Be, have, uh, submit to this glorious thing we do together in singing and see a new vision brought about in your heart. Harold Best says, A congregation is just as responsible to sing the gospel as preachers are to preach it. (laughs) You must sing it. You must sing it. You must sing it. Shout it. (laughs) Proclaim it. It's your gospel that you live by. And worship, one definition of worship is a preparation for death. Preparation for death. Hymns preparing you for that day, for that tragedy, for that difficulty. You'll have words, you'll have affections that your heart is trained in thinking about God and trusting God, trained in singing His praises so that those praises can buoy you up and flow into your heart and sustain you at the most difficult times of your life. This is training for life and death and eternity. May God give us grace. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your abundant mercy to us in Christ. Bless us, O oh Lord. Continue to pour out your grace in our lives. Thank you that you meet with us and are more eager to meet with us and pour out your grace than we could ever be to receive it. We rest in that zeal you have to do your people good. Amen.